welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales and to our recent series where we are looking at the history of native breeds of livestock in the UK. This week we're once again sponsored by Harborough and grateful for that sponsorship. The Shorthorn breed of cattle originated yep. in the northeast English counties where they were looking for a mixed breed of beef and dairy to suit that land. I'm extremely grateful to my American friend and often co-presenter of Top Lines and Tales, Dr. Bob Hoke, for his research on the breed and his upcoming book, The History of Shorthorns in the USA. And we'll be chatting to him a little bit later to personally thank him for sharing some of his information with us. However, my main guests this week are both well-respected current shorthorn breeders and past office bearers, uh, Kerry Coombs from the Dunsire Herd in the Borders and John Scott from the Fern Herd in Easter Ross. Welcome to the programme, both of you. Good to speak to you, Andy. Thanks for having us, Andy. Um, great to be here. Kerry, although the shorthorns are thought to have origins back to the Roman times, it would be three breeders who are collectively yep. heralded as the founders of the shorthorn breed as we know it, wouldn't it? Uh, indeed, uh, we'll come to those three breeders. Um, they're comparatively well known, but it mustn't be forgotten um, that they were working with the type of beast that had been developed in the northeast of England, uh, around Darlington and, and down as far as Holden S. Um, they were said at the time to be uh, cattle of a large frame and a strong bone and good milk yield and with shorter horns than the long horn. And they were variously known as the Holderness, the Teeswater, the Craven and the Durhams okay. and only later became known as Shorthorns. Base stock bred by others uh, um, and probably including imports from Holland that enabled these breeders to work their, their magic. Okay, and, and as you said, the short horn probably the name came because they had shorter horns than a long horn. And if we go through those, uh, the first name on the team sheet really are the brothers Charles and Robert Collings from the Darlington area, as you said, of uh, Northumberland, who took over the tenancy of Ketton Estates from their father in uh, 1785 and then subsequently the nearby Barnton farm. And studying Robert Bakewell's theories of inbreeding, they too would start with the purchasing of a number of females and a bull called Hubbock, who may have been of questionable parentage, could we say? And uh, Bakewell had a huge influence on the breed, uh, didn't he, chaps? Um, indeed. Uh, Bakewell, I think, was key to the Collings breeding methods, and and it was known that, that the Colling brothers visited him. As for Hubbock, um, I think it, he did have a questionable pedigree, but, but that would be the norm before a breed type was fixed, as were many, I suspect. Um, Hubbard was described as smallish, yellowish, red and, red and white animal. Uh -huh. And he was said to have been bred by a bricklayer, uh, then owned variously by a timber merchant, a blacksmith, the blacksmith's son-in-law, a fifth owner who charged a shilling a cow for service. And only then did he pass into the ownership of Robert Colling and a Mr. Waster. <laughs> they then sold him to Charles Colling who after two to three years soldering on to a Mr. Hubbock, okay. where he worked fruitfully until he was 14 years of old. Wow, good for him. 14 years of age. Good. And that's how he got his name Hubbock, as he entered the first herd book as bull number 319. Okay. Yeah, that's great to hear that uh, obviously that Hubbock then would have been a very influential bull right from the very start. And um, if we look at the females from um, Collins, they had uh, their female lines of Duchess and Strawberry would have been found at... Ketten, and they would breed those close to fix a type and uh, 
The latter went on to breed a bull favourite, 252, who is widely recognised as one of those early improvers and who was used on just about every cow in the herd, including his own offspring, and uh, for two or three generations, I think. And back then, as is now, um, this would result in a few casualties, I guess. John, um, um, inbreeding still happens, though, doesn't it, And to, to fix traits even to this day? Yeah, I think it's fascinating when you look back to see what those guys were doing, you know, 200 years ago to, to create the breed and, and, and fix the cattle and, and the type of cattle. And you, you just love to be able to go back there and, and speak to them about that thought process that they went through um, to develop this breed. And indeed, it happened in other breeds as well. Um, maybe not quite as far back as that, but yeah, still happening to this day. Um, and there's some really able guys out there in, in the breed and in the, indeed the wider cattle industry doing that all over the world um, and, and still developing these breeds. And a, and a lot of this came, as, as we said, a lot of Bakewell's theories came from breeding sheep, of course, and a little bit easier, should I say, or, or a, a shorter cycle to, to inbreed in sheep than you would with cattle. Because you start down a route of putting a bull to a cow, you're, you're three years of breeding before you're going to get that result back. And if, it, if it's wrong, and, or I suppose you'd know before then if it was, wasn't going to live, but it was uh, be quite a gamble they'd be taking the, uh, with a, a small nucleus of stock to, to breed them that close, wouldn't it? Yeah, as you say, sheep is easy. You can get a pretty quick turnaround. But as you mentioned, cattle takes so much longer. We've been breeding them at Fern for 25, 26 years. Um, and I, th I thought about it the other day and I thought, well, yeah, how much time have I got left breeding cattle? And I still want to do so much with it. So um, it's really important we encourage the next generation to try and carry on because it's a, yeah, it's a lifetime um, of work, really, breeding cattle and, and developing the herd I want to develop, let alone starting from from scratch like those guys did back then. Yeah, very exciting that we've come two hundred years of breed. Yes, John, as you say, I mean, there's a lot of these guys went two, three, four generations to get where they got to, and there are breeders now, as we'll see later on, who have put those uh, long-term generations in as well. But let's go back to Collins and. Uh, Probably the best known of, of the favourite sons that we mentioned was, of course, the Durham Ox, bred by Charles Collins, and uh, a beast, I'm going to quote, a beast so magnificent that it was exhibited throughout the land where common folk would queue up to pay to see it. That's pretty good if we get people to pay to see our livestock. And then uh, Collins then sold him to a Mr. Bloomer for £140, well done, who then set him up with his own carriage and took him on the road for five weeks touring the country. And then Bloomer sold him on with the carriage as well for £250 to John Day, who exhibited him for the next six years and seemingly made a fortune from his efforts. And uh, he reputedly turned down £2,000 for this great ox, now weighing nearly two tons. What a legend. What a beast, uh, Gary. That's, that was some advertising for the breed, eh? It, it must have been. He must have been magnificent. And there, there are a lot of paintings and prints of, the, uh, of this animal that were published at the time. I understand one of these prints sold 2,000 copies within one year. Um, I think he was the most famous of these travelling uh, steers and heifers, of which there were a number of, of as, he, as in your previous uh, podcast, you know, there were, there was a Hereford steer equally that, that travelled the country. I, I gather that the Durham Ox even made it as far as Evan, Edinburgh, but um, that would be interesting. I also um, gather that he damaged his hip in 1807 as he was alighting from his um, trailer, and, and that was the end of him. Um, I think I think he he was no more after that damage. <laughs> so he stood five foot six inches tall at the shoulder. There were other short horns that travelled too. I think the Craven Heifer, 
And as I said, what a, of course, what a great advert for the breed. And uh, as we know, we go on to other herds that some people have seen him and then uh, got themselves into the into the short horn. So obviously, a, not just a travelling freak, but a, a shop window for the breed. Indeed, indeed. Um, I believe he even made it onto um, a Staffordshire dinner service as well, just out of interest. That in the days before social media and um, television, I, I think it uh, must have been quite an effective means of promotion. Sure, it would. And um, if we just carry on with the Collings, and we talk about other breeds just now, there is some documentation about the introduction of Galloways into the Collings' herd, and, and I think they did have some, and uh, we'll speak about the Poles Shorthorns later, but how beneficial would uh, Galloway blood have been to the Shorthorn back then? Uh, John, they certainly wouldn't be as big, would they? Would they be bringing them in maybe to improve the carcasses, perhaps? Yeah, no, I think um, that there's obviously been a couple of breeds brought in over the years, and, and possibly the Galloway was um, brought in for a bit of carcass also. Um, they certainly get plenty hardiness from the Galloway as well. And I think, you know, later on, it was um, the Menage was the one certainly that when I got involved was still talked about quite a lot um, and what it, what that breed brought to the, to the breed. Okay, we'll talk about the Menage uh, shortly. And, and Charles Collins dispersed in 1810 when 29 females and 18 bulls averaged something over £500. That's a fair trade uh, over 200 years ago, probably... Somewhere near 20 grand per head average in today's money, which will be up there with uh, maybe the big dispersals that we're seeing at the, at, at the moment. You'd go to Sterling now and be happy with that average, uh, with a price like that. It's just, it's amazing to think. But yeah, some big prices been set in the last week or so in Sterling. And yeah, it's nice to see cattle making some money. And it's only right when somebody puts that, that amount of effort into building a herd like um, Collings did way back, that they get rewarded for it. The famed bull Comet 155 was amongst the cattle on offer that day, and he sold in a four-way split for £5,000, somewhere near a quarter of a million probably today. And Can you imagine getting £5,000 for a bull in 1810? That's just mind-boggling. But uh, Comet had a huge influence on the breed, uh, didn't he, Kerry? Um, he did indeed. Uh, if we refer back to his pedigree too and the inbreeding, it's quite astonishingly how it how inbred he actually was the bull well Collins had a bull called Foljam who sired favourite um, but also favourite's dam Phoenix as favourite was then mated to his own dam Phoenix to produce the cow young Phoenix who is in turn mated back to favourite to produce the, produce the famous bull comet and really when, when inbreeding and line breeding as close as that works clearly it made him very prepotent he was an extraordinarily successful sire uh, but you do wonder how many uh, beasts that were bred that closely were culled basically and, and and just not fit for purpose but um he was he was certainly an extraordinarily um uh, successful bull Yes, incredibly inbred, as you said, and, and they wouldn't all survive at that, but when you do get the right one, then uh, then on, on you go. And um, Richard Collins then would disperse the herd some 10 years later, and the Collins' era sort of came to an end. And the next guy on the sheet, really, would be a guy called Thomas Booth, who would be an, a, another breeder around that similar time, experimenting with cattle roughly in the same area at um, Killaby Hall there near Catrick. And although... 
initially anyway, he wasn't quite so regimented, I don't think, and eventually he did settle on a short-arm type after buying a few at Charles Collins's disposal, and from there he made more inroads in breed development by hiring out his bulls to widen his gene pool, and I think that's quite a good idea, thus getting access to more results. Uh, John, is that something you do, hire out your bulls locally so you can buy bulls back? Well, if you think back to 50, 60 years ago, there would have been quite a few herds in this area, and we could have um, you know, swap bulls and hire bulls out. I think nowadays, with the with the high health situation we've got, which herds have, there's less of that going on, unless you happen to be in the same area as someone with a similar health status to you. Of course, with AI now, which they didn't have back then, yeah. artificial insemination has made it really easy to spread those genetics around, and that's what we see happening now. I hear what you're saying, and, and, and we will look at some of the pioneers that did share some early bulls, and as you're right, it wasn't something that was commonplace cause of the, just because of the logistics. And Booth carried on um, breeding short-ons for three generations, and we mentioned this earlier on, this is the generation thing, and he acquired uh, Wallaby Farm also, and uh, initially he was adverse to showing and, and the heavy feeding that it took, and uh, the herd was run on a more commercial scale, but eventually they succumbed to the show ring, and winning the national show in 1839 and it's to both of you a question i suppose it's always a thin line between producing your stock uh commercially or potentially ruining some of the best ones by uh by feeding them and we'll have a look at just how much they did feed some of these things in a bit but uh john we've seen some of these photographs and for them to be to win the shows they'd have to be uh in some fettle wouldn't they yeah and it's fascinating that it's a it's a similar discussion we've had through the ages i suppose that we still talk about it now i mean from our point of view, in the way we farm short runs at Fern, we, we don't do much showing. We, we enjoy going to a show, but we're looking for animals that will, well, the, the, the male, the surplus males, the steers that will finish at 360 kilos off grass at 18 months. Um, so very commercial focus. Um, but one of the great things about the breed is it's got this versatility. So well, whilst I'm focusing on that, there may be people that really just want to, to enjoy the show ring and enjoy the, the, the quiet nature of the animals and show them off. Um, in the ring and it, you know that's the great thing about the breed there's room for for everybody in the breed and, and people bringing cattle out for different um reasons and i'll bring carrie in there i think you probably got hit in the show ring fairly hard when uh, you first got going and we'll talk about that later in the episode but um you, you might have just backed off a little bit now with uh, with uh, the inputs uh, carrie um yeah indeed we we've never been that strong in the show ring and, and actually i think we're too mean with our, our our feed to to really compete with the big boys now we're, we're very much commercially focused but it's, it's interesting as john john says there's so many different um ways you can you can work with these cattle and, and a different emphasis in in pursuing your your marketing but also you know referring back to booth he was known as a, a breeding a more beef type animal uh, and, and, and baits who will come to it in a wee while is well they used to say baits for the pail and booth for the butcher but you know they were they were and they were highly competitive as breeders are today but we've all got our different emphasis we put on our cattle some some you know will be breed bigger cattle some will breed milkier cattle um some will breed more muscular cattle and and you know up to a point within a breed standard you know it it's it's fine it's great isn't it we can all do our own thing to some extent exactly all benefit from from variations within the breed but it is about a breed standard isn't it certainly back then they would be trying to get towards one standard where they could all compete on the same stage and talking of booth he he did eventually have uh twin heifers who are quaintly named as necklace and bracelet and uh 
subsequently they became uh, his strong show team and uh, bracelet won 17 prizes and necklace won 16 i think that's rather nice sisterly love <laughs> move on richard's two sons were richard and john entered the farming business and they each had a separate farm and herd and, and a bull would often be used across the, the three herds so i suppose this goes back to what we were saying earlier on you can give a, a more accurate picture of his progeny when you're trying him on using him in three different places and that's quite a pioneering thing to do back then and as we said not many folks would have would have shared a bull back then would they carry I don't know whether they would. They transferred ownership quite a long time, but um, it was said it's, it's quite difficult to imagine um, farming systems way back then, isn't it? And compare them with our own. Um, it's very difficult to compare what we're doing now with what they were doing then. And, you know, even going back, to, we, we referred a minute ago to the use of the Galloway. We don't really know what the, the Galloway cattle they infused the short home with looked like, really, do we? We're sort of, we're imagining it a bit. Yeah. You know, so everything we refer to back in the 18th century, it's a long time ago. And uh, the way they managed their cattle is, was probably very different. I, I will just touch on the Galloway because I am researching for those for a, for a subsequent episode. And there was an exodus of Galloway cattle from Galloway County down into Norfolk for, for various reasons. I think when they just managed to uh, dry out the, the wash. And there was something like 30,000 um, Galloways went down there. So they'd obviously pick a few of those off on the way and thought, well, let's give this a try. Anyway, we have no substance in that accusation. So let's move on to the straight and narrow. And uh, it was said of Booth, as you just said, that he put the width of back in, as a higher importance in, in, in that of his cattle than, uh, than of the flow of milk. And of course, that making him pretty much the, the father of the beef short on strain that, uh, that we know today. And Meanwhile, we have yet another rival, the third of this trio, and this was one Thomas Bates, and farming on a tenanted farm in Kirk Levington on the banks of the River Tyne, uh, land owned by the Duke of Northumberland. Bates was a flamboyant, if not somewhat eccentric character, so we say. So much so that in 1879, somebody wrote a 500-page book about his, his antics, which uh, might well be worth a read from what I've read about him. And He had a classical education and started breeding short in 1800 after seeing the Durham Ox, so studying uh, Charles Collins. And in 1804, he purchased uh, Duchess from Collins and later her granddaughter, who was by Comet, from Collins. So there's a bit of an influence there, isn't there? And uh, he had other female lines as well, but it's... Uh, and he's more... Bates is more noted for that Duchess family, isn't he? And, and it was certainly well sought after in the export trade, as we'll find out in, in a minute. And um, as you said, perhaps he was the father of the of the dairy side of the breed. Um, indeed, Andy, um, it was those Dutchish lines that caused the most excitement, and I think they commanded quite spectacular prices, um, including from American purchasers. And you know, this is back in the early eighteen hundreds. Um, you know, they're on the back of very high milk yields. I think so famous were they that a number of breeders re-imported them from the USA uh, from a dispersal, paying up to, as I understand it, up to 8,000, which sounds extraordinary. On the downside, I believe they had a tendency to barrenness, um, which probably something to do with their inbreeding. Well, uh, I'll, I'll take a look at that at that statement you just said there, and I will shortly bring in Dr. Bob Hoke, and we'll have a chat with him about how the Hereford uh, cattle got a stronghold in USA after the basis cattle didn't, didn't quite survive well through the winter times, those dairy type cattle. But uh, just moving on, Bates went back to school at the University of Edinburgh aged 35 to learn some more. And, and some say he achieved that as well, especially with his bulls, such as the Duke of Northumberland, who became champion of England 
but others say, as you said there, he took his eye off the reproductive side of things a little bit, and at his dispersal after his death in 1849, 58 females forward, 24 had never had a calf. So uh, there hangs a lesson there, uh, uh, both of you. A beggar's belief that, you know, almost 50% of those females that had not had a calf. I'm not quite sure what they were doing, but they certainly uh, wouldn't be hanging around that long in the, the modern beef world, the modern short-term world. The as the breed gained popularity, it was time to start documenting some of these cattle. And uh, we've discovered on a recent podcast about the Hereford cattle that it was, this was often left up to free enterprise. And uh, at a meeting of top breeders, including the three mentioned above here, it was uh, one George Coates that was given the task of gathering all the information, whilst breeder Sir Henry Vane Tempest picked up the bill. And although the latter died a year later, Coates is said to have continually toured the northern counties, dropping off and on farms and fairs on his white horse. He must have been some man there, Kerry. He must have been indeed. It, it, George Coates actually was a noted breeder and he, he bred a noted book called Patriot. So he wasn't just a, an administrator for the herd book, but I, I, I've got someone called Scott Watson. He related that if on a day in or, in or about 1822, there had been seen coming over the ridge into Wolfdale, an old man on a white horse, it might have been George Coates with his satchel full of calf records and bull pedigrees. <laughs> Apparently, he had a mobile desk too. Um, so, <laughs> you know, yes, I believe he, he was quite quite a man. Um, and it must have been some job of work gathering. You know, there's a lot of retrospective stuff going around breeders, you know, sort of breeding records going, going back you know quite a number of years previously so um you know if a cynic would say i, I just wonder how accurate all of that was but anyway the cynic might just say that and a few other breeds as well but we'll take what he's got at least it was a start as clive davis said last week that was a start we could work on and the task took him uh, six years to complete and then they had another meeting of the greater good and they all gathered to view the results and uh more money was pledged then to print the work because he got it all gathered but they got to get it down into a book so some of that was offered from robert collins and then uh Robert Collins went and died in 1820, and uh, the, the money dried up then, and eventually it was left to Jonas Whittaker to solely finance the work, which was completed in uh, 1822, some 20 years later. So some job of work, as you said, it took him 20 years, and uh, 700 bulls and uh, a similar number of females were recorded, and 500 copies were produced and sold at one guinea each. So therefore, th there we go, he got his money back, or somebody did. <laughs> it's fascinating, um, Andy, but I'm listening to this thinking that, that I'm pretty sure that I know Katie's got a horse. I don't know if it's white or not. Um, I know he's got a satchel. I've seen him with a satchel at Sterling. Uh, he's, he's, he's cut his cow numbers back. He's going to have time in his hands. He maybe could pick up this bit of work and, 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 and keep going with it. Good indeed. It might take me a while to get up to you, John. It's too far for me and my horse. <laughs> Uh, and you mentioned horses. I think this would be the first herd book of its kind in the world, although there had been a few, I believe, had done in the horse world prior to that. I'm not sure if Coates was involved in those. But, uh, um, Kerry, you've done a bit of research around the, the herd book uh, recently for a centenary. Have you got coming up? Is that right, shortly? Well, that, that's right. I, you know, I haven't done that much work on it, but it, it is interesting that, you know, we, we're doing this podcast now and 2022 is, um, you know, the 200th anniversary next year is a notable year for all short horn breeders um and i like to think that the the, the triumvirate of collins booth and bates and indeed george coates and all the rest while they might have been disappointed by some of the travails of, of the breeds 
kind of in recent history, I, I'd like to think they would be delighted with the the sort of resurgence um, in the in the two hundredth anniversary year. Indeed, um, indeed, certainly yeah. from where they've gone, and well, with this podcast, uh, um, we'll move on through because uh, there's a lot to talk about. But indeed, the, the doldrums that they went through to come back to where they are now, yes, is a credit to all of you. But certainly, they would be proud of that. And, and Coates is reputed to have not earned any money from his first book, although it sold for a guinea a piece. And but he immediately set about uh, a second one, so he's a glutton for punishment, and that came out seven years later. And then subsequently, a Coates Herd book has been produced every year since. Is that right? And I guess some of those early ones are worth a bit more than a guinea now. Yes, I, I've got most of them. I don't have the. I don't own the first one, which is a shame. Um, they're, they're only worth a guinea. Only worth a guinea. You could have bought one. Indeed, I could. Um, I suspect I couldn't afford one now. But anyway, and uh, they will be sought after, as you said, and I'm sure there will be a lot of people that will have. Uh copies of all those uh, books without getting too bogged down in every detail of the shorthorns breed history which we don't have the time for we'll move on through the 1800s just cherry picking a few uh, bloodlines that survived until we reached the breed's heyday in the sort of turn of the 20th century and uh, you guys maybe give me the names of a couple of uh, early female families there that have still survived the test of time we've obviously talked about the the duchess being more on a dairy side are there other female families that can go back those 200 years well, I'm not the best person to speak about families. I, um, I've established quite a lot of my own, but um, one in particular I was re researching, which I believe John has um, uh, a number of two in the Clipper family. Uh, it's yep. probably my most successful line I can trace back, and it goes back through to Mill Hills and Kalini. That is an ex that is the interest in these old families. You know, it, you can go way, way back, um, and if you have all these herd books, you can you can look at them all. But some of them were um, were dual purpose lines too. They they weren't. I think it was the Moss Rose family, for example, is both a dairy and a and a beef family. One thing that sets the the native breeds apart from some of their continental counterparts is that they do carry on keeping the female names in the family, so we can trace these going back the way. Whereas nowadays the animal begins with this year's year letter, and, and those families have got lost, and maybe they don't. The continentals don't emphasise so much importance on on the female families as some of the native breeds. But again, I'm probably going to upset half the people listening to this by saying that. So uh, shoot me if you like. I, I think one of the things that um, is really important with families is that we do. You know, appreciate that history, and I think when I started, I, I I didn't appreciate the history that goes with those family names, and I did use other names, and and now everything that I've got have reverted back to the original family names, and it it is fascinating as you as you follow it, and we'll come to guys like uh, General Turton and Christopher Marler later on, and they you know they really were great at emphasising how important these family names were. Yeah. Well, I was certainly yeah. getting involved in the breed. Certainly, and still are, and still are. Let's, let's uh, just move on a little bit. We have to remember for the, the, this podcast that the Short On did become a dual-purpose breed, and, and they sort of split down the middle where Bates' type cattle went on to be the dairy Short On, and, uh, and we had the beef Short On. And the, the dairy Short On eventually pretty much died out in the 70s, and... Uh, after the more specialist dairy cows such as Friesian and Ayrshire came into, into being, and, and we're probably going to move away from that dairy side of it. But just to say, they were damn good cattle, Kerry, weren't they, the dairy short on? Indeed they were. And I'm not sure it's quite true to say they nearly died out. They were certainly drastically reduced in numbers. Um, but interestingly to me, my, my first short ones weren't actually beef short ones. I, my first short ones were, were a strain of dairy short ones, the northern dairy short ones. And I, I bought some foundation cows from... 
a very well-established, long-established dairy herd in the north of England, the Wimbrook herd of George Dent. Um, and his bloodlines were the foundation of some of my own families. Um, yeah, that's a point I, I quite like to make. Although the, we have these separate strains, separate breeds, as we now call them, the dairy and the beef shorthorns, up until very recently, we, you know, there's be, we've been free to move back and forward between the, the dairy and the beef shorthorn. And uh, also in the northwest, just to add another variant here, there was the white bread shorthorn. And I think that was another dairy beast as well, was it? And they're on the rare breed list, but they're still around. What can you tell me about those? Well, I think the, the exact origin and birthplace of the white bread shorten isn't isn't actually known or, or not that I'm aware of. Um, it was a, the white shorthorn aroused interest in the border country over 100 years ago when I think it was referred to as the Cumberland white. Um, I, I suspect it is quite closely related to some of those um, strongly dual purpose type you know there's a one historic herd that no longer exists but hasn't long the gainford herd was very strong dual purpose herd i i, I would suspect that the white bread shorthorn is of a similar type the white but i mean of course white bread shorthorn breeders might tell me different <laughs> they're very protective aren't they of their, of their traditional native breeds their, their rare breeds should i say Go In, on, John. indeed they are indeed they are. so they should be it would be interesting, guys, to, to find out too, and I don't know whether modern technology and DNA would ever let us um, understand, you know, where was where did the Galloway fit into this and at what stage, if a Galloway was brought into the, to the short term way back, was that before the Whitbread short term went off in, in, in their direction? And is there is there a link there? I don't know. You might find more, Andy, as you... You do more podcasts with more breeds. Certainly, I'll, I'll look out for that. And I was going to come on to the pole shorten, which of course is another strain again, and and again another breed, or certainly in the USA. And a lot of this would be developed in the USA, and uh, much like the pole Hereford that we spoke of last week. And we'll catch we'll catch up with the poles later. In talking of USA, I'm going to have a word with our friend uh, Dr. Bob Hoke about his research into the these early USA uh, imports, and we'll touch on that pole gene as well. Well, Dr. Bob, it's, uh, it's brilliant to have you back on the podcast again, and uh, regular contributions are always welcome, and, and this one particularly more so, because I know you've done a lot of research into uh, the short-on breed and come up with a, a fantastic example uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a great book, and uh, I will admit that I've taken a little bit of your research and, and, and pulled some of it back for this uh, podcast, Bob, uh, so, um, so uh, thank you for that, Bob, and... Uh, Tell us about this great book and where we can get one. We all want one for Christmas. Well, I, I would be great for everyone to have one for Christmas. It's uh, it's the, the American Shorthorn Association, and you go to their website, shorthorn.org, and uh, and it, it's there, and the order is there. And, and basically the pricing, the only difference is the shipping to whatever country it goes to. Sure. And, yeah. um, and it's, um, gosh, it's, uh, it's 100 thousand words and 800 pictures so it's a <laughs> 11 and a half by 11 and a half uh coffee table reading book and i mean there was unbelievable amount of research which is what i have fun with uh-huh. and one of the most fun chapters of the whole thing was chapter one when i learned about the united kingdom and how agriculture modern agriculture was developed i mean from the uh uh crop rotations with lord townsend and Thomas Coke and Bethro Tall and then into Robert Bakewell. There was just so much more there than I thought. And 
that's always fun to see the underpinnings of all of animal agriculture, how that came about. And then everything just flows from there. It's just, it was a fun, fun book. It, it certainly does, and as you say, the, the whole idea of the podcast that we do is to study the history of these breeds, but it all stems back to these guys that put the legwork in uh, in earlier on, didn't they? And uh, and going on to the Shorthorns, of course, you know, the Great Improver, as it's known, um, that these guys learnt from Bakewell, and, and then we sort of look at the way the Shorthorns came into the U.S. and uh, and pretty much took took the place over. In, in, uh... Gosh, it was 1783, and, and to put that in context... That's the year we signed the Treaty of Paris to end hostilities between our countries and um, or what would become our country. And that wasn't ratified till 1784. So technically, we were still at war until one of the first cattle came in. And and uh, it was Goff and Miller brought them in into Virginia. And, and it was, I mean, they didn't haul the, the uh, flag down from the United Kingdom uh, until uh, November of 1783 in New York City. Uh, they still were occupying the city. And there was a great flux in our country because the loyalists were going up to Canada, mainly into New Brunswick. And, I mean, so there was much, much flux. But they, they got those cattle in, and it was very interesting. And, and amazingly, and two years later, they had made it over the mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, into the territories, because into what was the wilderness of Kentucky, and uh, which became known as the Pattenstock, because these cattle came in very rapidly, and, and they came in in great numbers. And um, you know, some a couple other major imports were 1817. Uh, that uh, you know, we had another the 17s by Lewis Sanders brought in. Uh, uh, major importation there was importations mighty in between but um, those were two of the most influential ones the Goff miller patton and the 17s but there was lots and lots in between and i'll tell you that you know herford and angus and stuff they came in like one and here and there and but these one when the floodgates opened up boy they opened up on on the shorthorns and uh if I could add, you know, one thing, they, they, they usually got agents over in your country to put cattle together for them. You know, they would go over one time, like uh, uh, Felix Rennick uh, went over and uh, actually had Thomas Bates take him around, which uh, I heard Thomas yeah. Bates was not exactly a social person, nope. but took him around and showed him lots of herds and and then they then they they got all these importing companies, and it got to be very popular to put together importing companies with many people investing, and they would bring over these big drafts of cattle and resell them as soon as they got a big shape. There was lots of money to be made, and uh, sure. boy, they just spread from everywhere. They just spread as fast as could be. Sure, and, and the, the smart men stayed in that business for the next hundred years, didn't they? Later on in this in this episode, we'll hear about how some of the cattle went out in the, at the turn of the century by some of the, the very clever men. Bob, I thank you for your input on that one, and I am going to come back to you a little bit later in this uh, episode to, uh, to to pick your brains on, on another um, um, interesting part of the short on history. So we'll catch you in a few minutes. All right, great. So... As we heard in the Hereford podcast, uh, herd prefix names and especially letters didn't really come in until the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, it made it difficult when you've got all these bulls called a favorite one, two, three, five. And um, 
until we got a uh, prefix in there and then once we did get those prefixes at the turn of the 20th century then some of them immediately come to the fore and uh, and we'll talk about a few of those the names certainly Collini, Mill Hills and Upper Mills all featured around about that time would, would be a, a reckoning force amongst the breed so let's just dissect a couple of those herds and the earliest probably would be uh, William Duthie's uh, Collini herd started in 1856 and Interestingly, I read he was hindered by a case of foot and mouth pre-1900, and I didn't realise we had foot and mouth in the country uh, going back that far, so that's something I've learnt. And it seems that a lot of Collini bulls were exported, mainly to Ireland, but one uh, Collini ringleader sired more prize winners than most, including the winners of all six classes at one Smithfield show, which is pretty good achievement, I'd say. And when uh, William Duthie died at age 91, he was hailed as the king of the shorthorn, and the herd had numbered some 200 cattle. What, what an important figure, Kerry, he was for the breed. That, that was a man uh, who had a huge influence uh, uh, on um, William Duthie. And, uh, th that was Amos Cruikshank of Cityton, okay. who, who start, actually started earlier in 1837. But he secured an, an eight-year-old English bull, Lancaster Comet, for 30 guineas, which was descended from Collingstock. And he secured it sight unseen, um, on the back of its pedigree um so it was transported up by rail as they did then um and amos rode down to the station um to meet this bull and apparently was horrified by what he saw the bull was described as having horns resembling those of a highlander so poor lancaster comet was not allowed to set foot on citadel but was sent out to run with a group of cows considered doubtful breeders so the poor bull was left left out over the winter developed rheumatism and was destroyed but not before he sired a few calves now one of those calves was destined to come that the famous bull champion of england although why he called it champion of england when he lived so far north uh, you know we will never know yeah, but it it's it said that that bull laid the foundations of the the scott shorthorn type okay um and he Amos wasn't slow to realize his value and set to work stamping his qualities across the herd. Um, but William Duthie of Colony um, bought a lot because the Cityton herd was actually sold to Argentina, but financial difficulties mean that very few of them actually made it. So Colony took um, 30 cows and, uh, and carving heifers. And, and we mentioned family names um, a little uh, a while ago and didn't come up with many but uh, some of the names he he bought there I've got, I've got written down here venus secret victoria duchess of gloucester crocus clippender lavender and spicy lines um so william's most famous bull after all this was uh used that was a field marshal of cityton um and he was eventually sold again and he went down to the royal herd at windsor okay. so it's amazing you know that the, you know, when you think of the transport links and the rail links, it was very different from shoving a, a bull on a, on a truck. Certainly. Taking six to Smithfield and winning all the, all the classes with some uh, some feet as well, despite the fact it was probably in the heyday of, of, of some of the other breeds. And I did discover Citadel actually, when I was doing some research on the Canella herd, it seemed that a lot of theirs um, started from the Cookshanks oh, yeah. as well. And I certainly know mm. that uh, Dr. Bob Hoke has, uh, has said that they were very influential in, in uh, the start of the breed in, in the USA. Uh, so... Uh, Upper Mill was pretty much next door to Collini and they tended to work together uh, at their sales and uh, 
in tandem, as well as sharing bulls, I think, in uh, a 2,000-acre estate that James Durnow had taken over the tenancy of in 1914, employing over 50 men. And then his son, uh, Dr. James, uh, took over from him in 1923. And the herd is still going to this day, I think. And Mary Durno took over uh, from her father, I think, in 1971, although the farm size is obviously reduced somewhat now. And among its achievements, there were 12 Perth champions, 15 Highland show champions, and 16 Royal show champions, making it possibly the most successful herd of all time. And uh, some say the accomplishment of the herd was maybe due to uh, master stockman Sandy Forbes, who was there, who was followed by the equally talented Robbie Minty. But uh, between them, they served 50 years. But, uh, John, that's a pretty impressive record from a pretty impressive herd, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, certainly my early memories of, of breeding short runs, I, I went to visit there and it was just wow. Just consistency, easy fleshing cattle. Yeah, just real wow seeing that herd and the setup, the history behind it. As, and as you say, those stockmen involved there, they were. The, they were the best in the business um, at the top of their game, and they were very hard to get past the show ring. They really knew what they were doing. Indeed. Indeed. And, and, and as we see, we'll see a lot of photographs to go with this, and you'll see uh, certainly Minty cropping up on, uh, at most of the lineups for the for the, the, the Royal Show uh, champions and, of course, the Burke trophies. We, we move, move on to uh, Mill Hills, we mentioned as well, from Duncan Stewart, and they were based in Creef. And again, we're a long-lived herd from a... A bull that he bought from Kalini, and I'm sure you'll correct, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, uh, Kerry, a bull called Captain of the Mint. And 70 bulls were sired by him to average 750 guineas by the early 20s. So that was some trade. And they included Millhill's Comet, who was uh, sold for 6,000 and champion at Perth in 1920, a record that stood for 25 years. And Millhill dispersed in 1953. And uh, still a lot of traceable Millhill's uh, 70 years later through the breed, isn't it? Indeed, there is, and I think we owe so much to those, you know, the deep pedigrees that they established in those days. Exports of shorthorns peaked in 1920 with 2,589 animals leaving the shores. Now that's a lot of cattle, and at one point in the future, there probably wouldn't even be that many cattle in the country at, at uh, in one year. So that puts it in perspective. And a lot of these would go from the southwest of Scotland through uh, Matthew Marshall, and then later his son uh, Albert or Bertie, as he's known. And, from small beginnings, Bertie ended up farming no less than eight farms along that Galloway coast, and the herd numbered up to a thousand purebred head. And in so one three-year period, he registered over a thousand calves in the Coates herd book. And uh, he ran two prefixes, Cruddleston and Bridgetown, because he said that uh, he ran out of names just to run them in one herd. And uh, Bertie spent a lot of time in Argentina and then travelled down there with the bulls on the boat as a young man and became a bull exporter himself and uh, won just about everything there was to win, including the Highlands and the Royal. And a uh, uh, phenomenal man, Kerry. What, what, what an operation that was. It must have been huge. It must have been so impressive. Funny enough, he, he, was a, he was a renowned Clydesdale breeder as well. He's, he was an all-round stockman. Um, I think it's quite interesting that um, Bertie was sent out in, when he was a young man um, to the aforementioned Gainford herd. Um, so, he, so I think he was, he was encouraged to go out and look widely. And he was also, young, as a young man, Bertie was sent to Argentina too with a lot of cattle. I get the feeling that they kept, Within that huge number, you know, they played the numbers game. I suspect they had quite a range of types and they were able to, you know, satisfy whatever their 
you know, fulfill whatever the demand was. Um, but yeah, it's 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 extraordinary when you think. I think you know the herd actually started with three calves in 1899. Yeah. We built it up though to those numbers. But you know, it's an astonishing achievement. As we said, he would be buying because they were exporting a lot. He'd be buying in bulls as well, and yeah. certainly Bertie would be doing that if not his father and buying the bulls. And some of them would do back and and uh, and then shipping them across to to a growing market that they got in in, in the South America and. In 1946, he sold uh, females for a record of 2,000 guineas. And in 1951, he had 28 bulls at Perth to average 771 guineas. 28 bulls. That's incredible. And pretty, pretty much then every country in the world that would have cattle of any sort would have blood based on from Marshall, including Russia and China, as well as at one time the top 20 herds in the UK having Cradleston the Sire, so they say. And um, incidentally, his nephew was a guy called Jerry Rankin. And uh, a lot of people probably won't know this, but obviously of the West Drums Aberdeen Angus fame and uh, Boots, the pure drug company. And uh, I think Bertie had sold them some short-horn bulls for 7,000 and, and Jerry went with the deal. Again, Jerry was in Argentina learning his trade down there and he'll get a mention in the, in the next couple of weeks when we move on to, to that breed. Um, st sticking with Bertie Marshall, he died in 1952, and the sale is up there as probably one of the greatest events in the brief history. And uh, the whole herd were brought by a special train from Wigtown to Perth, and then walked through the streets to the marsh. Imagine the sight. Buyers lined up the pavements from all over the world, and the sale took two days to complete. A selection of 66 head on the first day made 40,000, came to 40,000 guineas, with a top of 4,000 for Cribbleston, uh Guthrie on the first day. And then the second day, uh, the rest of them were sold, and, and the herd grossed 134,000 for 240 head, um, which in itself was incredible. But the astonishing fact is nearly half of those were exported. And I suppose, for all we, we marvel at this, uh, John, there'd be concern at the time that uh, so much good stock was going overseas. They were raiding the, raiding the till a little bit, weren't they? Yeah, there was, it was very hard for for the um, UK breeders to compete with that overseas, with the money from overseas. And all the, a lot of the best genetics were, were going there. And actually, the, the, those overseas buyers were, were driving the type as well. And, and that was, I suppose, the start of the way things were going, and of the, the breed getting maybe smaller, and, and they went smaller and smaller and smaller. And that was a, yeah, we'll come to, I'm sure, the Continentals coming in later on, but... Um, yeah, there was a real drive to get that type of cattle for the export market. You know, we lost a lot of good genetics that went abroad. Well, in some ways, thankfully, we did because when we did come to need them, we we knew where they were. So I suppose they, maybe we put them in the put them in the locker until they were wanted again. And we'll go over that shortly. And interestingly, the stockman from uh, Bertie Marshall's uh, Jimmy Dixon went on to New House of Glams, and of course another name uh, who was uh, famed with uh, Aberdeen Angus, but uh, they had a pretty good short on her too, which we'll we'll talk slightly later on about uh, if i can rattle through a few of these uh, um others uh, another herd should get a mention is the histon herd from cambridgeshire uh, not so much for their cattle but as for their incredible business sense of the shivers family and starting with with a 14 acre orchard in 1810 their soft fruit business grew to 8,000 acres employing 3,000 people making everything from marmalade to lemonade and they even had their own health service and bus company to service their staff and 
they built up four herds of shorthorns mainly to supply their dairy business. So I think this is more of a dairy side of it, uh, Kerry. But uh, they had Lincoln Reds, which of course were a shorthorn uh, origin anyway. When eventually the family eventually sold out to Swift. So what what mind-boggling statistics is that? That uh, eight thousand acres employing three thousand people. Yeah, extraordinary. I mean, this, it crops up over and over again in, in the history of, of, of many of these breeds, isn't it? The, the sort of extraordinary characters and resources that were put into breeding breeding cattle. Mm. You know, it's just fascinating history behind all these breeds. It certainly is, and it does recur time and again that some of these wealthy people they did put their money into shorthorns for for the glory of it and, and for the tax dodge of it again. <laughs> but I don't think um, shivers were doing that. I think they were purely businessmen, and they needed a thousand cows to supply the milk for the milkshakes or whatever it was their business was selling and and, and the short one was their was their breed of choice so, uh, moving on um to one i heard it was near you john uh, john mcgilvery was uh, one of four brothers growing up on a hill farm near uh, inverness and uh, he started his own uh, cal rossi herd in 1905 and his brothers all had their own herds including finley who started the aldi herd and John was made a captain in, in the First World War, and it was after that that his herd started to really perform, um, winning his first champion uh, with Calrothy Field Marshal, which uh, sold for 2,600. And the herd went on to win 12, champ 12 Perth champions. Again, it seems to be 12 seems to be the number of these people winning these things. I don't know you guys have gone past 12 yet, but uh, somebody will at some stage. The herd went on to win 12 uh, Perth 12 times, eight reserves up to 1955. And his successes are too numerous to mention, of course, but... Uh, uh, one could do an entire podcast on this man, I think, on his own. But I'm just going to put over a quick story that I heard, and then I'll leave the floor to, to you on this one, John. But it's a story when he saw a Collini royal leader at the Highland Show, and I quote, he said he was the finest bull ever to walk round a show ring, but some English bastard judge put him seventh in the class. <laughs> so I went home and I bought him over the phone for 2,500, despite his smutty nose. So there we go. That's John Cal Rossi. And there were some boys, uh, John, weren't they? Yeah, just over the fence, next door neighbours. And um, yeah, Captain John was a, a formidable character. Uh, uh, mentioned line breeding earlier on and I, I know we're certainly related on mum's side to them. I think there's a, maybe a distant relation on the on dad's side as well. So, um, the potential, yes, potentially line bread, Cal Rossi. But, um, Captain John, yeah, uh, yes, a real character. I heard the story of some Americans coming to um, to visit him one day. They came all the way across and up to uh, to Fern to visit the next door there. And uh, yeah, they were late. They're about half an hour late, and they were told you don't come late to Cal Rossi and off you go. And that was it. Didn't let them in. Um, but a real character. And um, yeah, and I obviously knew his, his son Donald and, and Di knew them well. And um, they really encouraged me starting out. And a great love story there with Di being sent from Australia to buy a bull to take her mind off the fact that the home, the family farm was getting taken for a dam. And she came over here, went to the bull sales in Perth and met Donald. Um, and a couple of dates later, they were, they were married and they spent spent their life together they were never apart so yeah tremendous people fantastic and still on the go today and the, perhaps one bull that, that stands out going back into history a little bit was uh cal rossi uh welcome who's 13 sons at perth in 1952 averaged 3664 pounds and during his lifetime that bull sold sons to total 130,000 guineas that, that's that's some record for one bull that probably will be struggle to be beaten i would think by any breed 
in pro rata probably ever for 50, 13 sons at Perth averaging three and three quarter thousand and the captain judge Palermo of course in Argentina and his stock went on and won the, the car load in a class in Chicago known throughout the world wasn't he yeah he was quite a character he went all over the world and um, very well respected and, and uh, a formidable character yes it would have been interesting to meet him <laughs> another one I've got mentioned here was Lord Lovett I'm not quite sure how much uh, Lord Lovett bred, but certainly had an influence over the, the breed and the society. Quite a prominent uh, um, character from the, uh, I think, the Black Isle district. Would that be right again, John? Your part of the world found a lot of land, I think, and the, the herd would be Beaufort Grange, and that probably would span the earlier episodes and, and maybe the, our, our later episode as well, more recently. Yeah, and at one stage, Lord Lovett's estate would have uh, it would have been right across the breadth of the country, from west to east. He, he had land all the way across. And um, not as well known as as Carl Rossi, but certainly one of several herds in this area that were, um, you know, very much part of the breed back in the day. Um, and when you, when you look back, there there were a lot of herds up here, and, and yeah, there was a, quite a bit of competition between them too. Certainly, I've heard him speak and say that I think he was he was farming thirty thousand acres or something, and uh, and uh, it was a thousand hill cows as as well as that. So it'd be a, a commercial hands-on farmer, considering he was the lord and. Would it be right in thinking that's the Fraser family? Is that the family name, Fraser? Yes, that's correct. Right. Yep. And um, a much smaller farming operation now. It had been a yeah, tragedy through over the generations. But, um, yeah, there was some history there. Okay. Moving on into the 20th century and the, the heyday of the short hill and breed probably must be held as the 1940s when over 5,000 herds of shorthorns were registered in the UK alone. And with 50 council members, the society would become uh, a little bit unmanageable, uh, Kerry. But a lot of these would be dairy guys, I guess. Good heavens, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, boards of um, cattle breeds are, I think, um, difficult to manage at the best of times. I can, I, I hate to even think about uh, what went on in those days. Um, maybe that was um, it led to the, the eventual split, which I think was about 1959, 1960, um, when the, the dairy and the beef... Um, split the herd book and and um, they both maintained the, the title the coats herd book but there was published as uh, separate sections so uh, uh, maybe that was inevitable with those kind of numbers sure five thousand herds i suppose yes a lot of those would be small herds and i know i've got an irish friend of mine and he said oh, we always had you know we had a herd of dairy short on sort of 10 cows so so there'd be a lot of small herds around about the place but five thousand five thousand members yeah. and i know three, i think the Texas Society got up to 3,000 members at some stage, but uh, 50 people on the council, good luck with that one. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> in, in, indeed, uh, 50 people on the council would be, would be quite challenging, challenging enough with the number we've got on it now. I'm not sure how many herds we actually got down to, but we are back up over 1,000 members now. So um, it, it's great there's been a recovery. But... Uh, and the 40s saw the beginning of possibly one of the other most influential breeders of all time, the biggest from Chapelton. And uh, Walter Bigger had been a great exporter of livestock and has been mentioned on a previous podcast. His portrait hangs in the famous Saddle and Sirloin Club and uh, Walter judged uh, Chicago, I think, something like 13 times. But it was his son, James, who, after serving an apprenticeship with Bertie Marshall, and as you said, Bertie Marshall was sent as apprenticeship himself. I think this is what these guys did, was send him on to someone successful and a wise thing to do. Uh, James went and served his apprenticeship with Bertie Marshall and then started the Chapleton Shorthorn Herd in 1942 with six heifers from uh, from Marshall. And... Uh, but by then, a lot of these bulls would be getting a bit small, I'm going to say. And maybe Bertie just kept his size in his cattle, and that's, and that's what Jim Bigger had seen? 
Yeah, I think by that stage, you would be yeah accurate there, Andy, that the things were getting small. They'd, they'd followed, that, followed that export market too much. And um, yeah, those herds that still had a little bit of size were actually um, useful for the UK market still. And, and, and yeah, it, it was a bit of a challenge um, finding the right genetics there. And um, as we said earlier, they'd been exported. You're right, John. You said with Bertie Marshall, we'll be having a, a, a large number of cattle there that he possibly would have some bigger ones around the corner that would suit the UK breeder and still have his smaller herd of, uh, or herd of smaller cattle, should I say. And um, despite a setback when being wiped out in 2001 by foot and mouth, the bigger family are still at the forefront of the breed to this very day. And uh, it's a great regret of mine that I couldn't engage the wisdom of my friend Donald Bigger, who sadly died earlier this year to help me with this podcast but uh, a great man wasn't he Carey Donald and, and uh, helped us so many other breeders probably yourself included and, and of many breeds not just one and uh, young James has uh, young James has got uh, a big role to fill now indeed um, it's a huge loss to 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 the breed um, and to cattle breeding in general um, I, I just at the I was at the bull sales just a couple of days ago and it was a noted breeder just came up to me and just had said how much he was missing his presence. Um, Donald was um, was always wise counsel. Um, you know, I served on, on the board for many years and, and indeed followed him as president. And um, in a board meeting, he would, he would, he would wait until everyone would have his say. And then he'd um, quietly give his opinion at the end and everyone would sort of sit there and think well why didn't i say that <laughs> and we had this ability to encapsulate an argument I, both john and i will have sat on councils with him too i sat on smithfield council with him and i've mm. mentioned this in another podcast in the galloways again how his father w was uh, was the same in a meeting when they were trying to decide whether they were going to allow horn cattle into the breed or not and uh, and he chaired a meeting for four hours by saying nothing and then sort of filled in at the end and that yeah that was definitely donald wasn't it well, his father said to me in, in the very early days, I, I met his, I knew James um, to speak to, and, and he, he said to me, and I remember his advice, um, you know, you, it, you're going the opposite direction to the other breeders, but if you keep going long enough and straight enough, you'll meet them all coming back. And it's exa that's exactly what, what is happening just now. Um, you got, also mustn't forget that... Um, they're no, you know, they were they're very successful cattle breeders of other breeds as well. I think they had the oldest recorded Galloway herd until it was killed off by foot and mouth. Um, the Hereford herd was noted, and and now they're they're making waves with Angus's as well. So you know, huge loss. Cattle huge breeders, loss. and again, we'll mention that maybe later on that how some people can breed cattle of all sorts. And and, and as yes. Clive Davis said, a good animal is, is never a bad colour. And I, I think this is probably a good time for us to to break before our next weekly instalment when we're going to have a look at the sixties through to now and how the Aberdeen Angus caught up or possibly overtook the, the Shorthorns and through the, the doldrum years of the 90s to where the Shorthorn breed now is once again holds its head high amongst the leading breeds in the UK and the world today. So uh, I thank you chaps for your input on that one and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Yep, yep. that's fine. Right up. Cool. Cool. Thank you for listening to our Top Lines and Tales podcast and be sure to tune in next week for part two of this uh, interesting episode. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support of the Top Lines and Tales podcast. And uh, of course, they are manufacturers and suppliers of high quality livestock nutrition as well as nutritional advice. And find them on, on their website for more information or follow them on Facebook.
Why not log on to our Top Lines and Tales Facebook group where you'll find a lot of old and new photographs to back up this and other episodes.